Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the 96th Psalm, Psalm 96, and then the fourth chapter of the book of John. We are continuing our series of messages, so I'm a church member, now what? Okay, and this morning we're going to talk about joining together in worship, and folks, I believe we have done that and we are doing that this morning. Amen. Psalm 96. Verse 1, O oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. And I like that phrase, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And then over in the book of John, the fourth chapter, you're familiar again with these verses. Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman. And she has brought up the issue of religion and where to worship. So in verse 22 of that fourth chapter, here's what Jesus said. He's speaking to her. He says, ye worship, ye know not what. And I'm just going to pause right there for a moment because I think sometimes if we're not careful, we'll come to quote unquote worship and we don't give a lot of consideration to who and to what we're worshiping. We're worshiping the great God, the mighty God of the universe. And so we need to keep that in mind, the creator of all of this. But let's continue reading. He said, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And then he says what is one of my favorite verses, John 4, 24, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I believe many people today, church members, some church members included, may attend church only because they regard it as a duty. God expects me to. The church expects me to be there and so I'll just show up. Now when those folks attend, quite often they just sit sort of passively and remain silent during the song service. I don't see how you could have remained silent in that song service we just had, folks. And if your heart wasn't touched by the singing, then uh, your wood's wet or something. I, I didn't use the phrase like I'm supposed to, right? But these folks will let their minds wander during prayer, doze through the sermon. That's okay. If that's the only place you can get any sleep, go ahead, you know. At least something maybe by osmosis or something will get in there. But attitudes like that have caused pastors to say things like, well, the clock struck noon and the church gave up its dead. Some said my church is going first in the rapture because the scripture says the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so a lot of times pastors get cynical about church attendance and, and church members attending or at least some attending. How much does meeting together mean to us? How much does meeting together with your brothers and sisters in Christ mean to you? 
You know, I thought I found out last year. We went through all the COVID. I called it, what did I call it in Sunday school this morning? I called it the lockup. I didn't call it the lockdown, but we were locked up and we couldn't meet for a while. And I remember seeing comments on Facebook. Oh, can't wait to get back and see everybody. Can't wait to start meeting together again. And all of these comments were made. And then remember about a year ago in November when Joni and I tested positive, although I don't know why. So for two weeks, we didn't have services and people were commenting the same things. And now some of those folks are not with us. And I don't mean they've gone on to be with the Lord. They're just not with us. Okay. But people were commenting. And it looks today sometimes that Apparently, people didn't miss things quite as much as they said they did. Because if they had, they would still be meeting together with us. Do we, do you truly enjoy coming together on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, a Wednesday night to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth? And that's how we are to worship God. Our spirits directed by the Holy Spirit always according to the Word of God. Do you anticipate Sunday with pleasure? I've said, maybe it was last week, I said, I look forward to Sunday. I look forward to, I actually look forward to seeing Brother Rick, you know. <laughs> uh, even the deacon, I look forward to seeing him. But we look forward to being together. Do you anticipate it with pleasure or maybe a bit of dread? Does the sight, and I know we've got a ways to go to meet this, but does the sight of a sanctuary filled with people worshiping God thrill your heart? I tell you, I was thrilled a few minutes ago, I'll say again, in the song service. There are those who just simply seek to defy the truth that's presented in God's Word, and they have no scriptural reason for forsaking the assembling of themselves together. You know, there is a real reason for being absent from the worship service. We call it providential hindrance. Some people say the ox is in the ditch. You know, the Old Testament law provided that on the Sabbath, if an animal was in the ditch, you could help that animal out. Uh, your animal or a neighbor's animal, you could help that animal out. So sometimes we get our ox in a ditch, right? Sometimes something happens on a Sunday morning. We were intending to go to church and something happens, maybe an illness, maybe something else. We just can't go. God understands that. Well, see, then there are folks that push the ox in the ditch. Don't push your ox in the ditch on a Saturday night so you can miss church on Sunday morning. And then there are some folks who don't come to church. They just say, I'm too busy. Listen, if you're too busy to come meet together with God's people and to worship God in spirit and in truth, you need to let some things go and it's not church. I remember a story one of our seminary professors told one time. He had a church member who had a business that was open seven days a week, and he was going to use a little psychology and get him to close his business on Sunday and start coming to church. So he told him, he said, you don't really need to be open seven days a week. Just think of the drain on your, your body and how you need to have a day of rest. And the guy took his advice and started closing on Monday. So I don't use psychology on people, right? I'll just say, if you're too busy to come to church, you're too busy, you need to be here. And then, some people say, well, preacher, and I may be stepping on toes, I don't know. Some people say, preacher, I was just too tired. That's not an excuse. Sometimes we make ourselves tired. I try to avoid doing things I couldn't yesterday, but I try, I'm tired this morning. I will tell you, when that alarm went off this morning, I wanted to just pull the pillow over my head and ignore it, but it's Sunday morning. It's time to get, I don't care how tired I am. I'm going to worship 
God. And so we must ask ourselves, is my worship pleasing to God or am I just going through some traditional ritual when I come to church? See, if our attitude is I'm coming to worship God, I'm coming to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ and in a corporate capacity worship God, then I think it will make a difference in our attending. First of all, let's look at the meaning of worship. We're going to refer to these verses and others as we go through this. Man was created to have fellowship with God. The Word of God teaches us that. In fact, if you'll read in the book of Genesis, Adam and God walked together in the Garden of Eden. And then one day, Adam didn't show up. Well, what had happened? God called out, where art thou? Now, God knew where Adam was. But God called out, where art thou, Adam? And Adam had hidden because the man had sinned. And that sin, as it always will do, had broken the fellowship between the man and God. And it said that the entry of sin into the world left what some call a God-shaped vacuum in the human heart. Now, if you know a little bit about physics, and I'm not great as far as physics is concerned, but if you know a little bit about physics, it said that nature abhors a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. In fact, I saw this, and I thought I'd share it with you. The definition of a vacuum is true empty space, an environment with nothing in it. It is the attempt to create a nothingness within the all-pervasive somethingness of the universe. Nothing cannot exist in nature because nature immediately fills that nothing with something. Trying to separate out from everything creates a state so profoundly unstable that it immediately disappears. And Plato said, nothing cannot be rightly said to exist. So, really a vacuum doesn't exist, but a God-shaped vacuum appears in the human heart. And when it was left, people sought to fill it with something. In fact, if you'll just turn over to the first chapter of the book of Romans, you'll see what mankind tried to fill that vacuum with. And in fact, it's a thing called religion. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, the vacuum is realized. Listen to this. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You know what happened? Mankind said, there there's a God. There's got to be a creator to all this. You can't look at this universe and just imagine that it just happened. There's got to be a creator. And yet they didn't recognize God. Because verses 22 and 23 tells us how they filled the vacuum. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. They said, surely there is a God, but we want a God we can see. We want a God that we can handle. We want a God that we can hold. We want a God that we can control. And so they began to worship creatures and, and creations and all of the things that they made. When Israel would turn from God, you know what they were doing? They were profaning the name of God through their idolatry. Now again, mankind was created to worship. 
We were created to worship God. We were created to fellowship with God. And therefore, you have to worship God or you have to find an alternative to God to worship. Now, I believe in our day and age, the God that people worship most is self. He's the most convenient God. He's right there with you. You take him everywhere you go and that just becomes their God. They worship self. But Satan has exploited this desire of mankind, of the heart of mankind to worship and he created, I'll say again, he created religion and religion is his biggest business. Think of all the religions there and I don't know how many there are, but think of all the religions that there are in the world and they all teach different things. And they can't all be right. Two things that contradict each other cannot both be right, cannot both be true. But Satan is involved in the religious business. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to the works. You know what that's saying? Satan has his preachers. Satan has his preachers standing in pulpits, some of them taking this same Bible that I'm using today and they're preaching false doctrine. They're preaching works for salvation. They're preaching church membership for salvation. They're preaching you can lose your salvation. They're preaching many things that are not according to the word of God and they're not preaching the word of God. First Timothy chapter four, verse one. Now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils or doctrines of demons. You know what he says? In the last days. Now Paul's writing to a young preacher. Timothy is pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul is telling Timothy what to look out for and what to expect. And he says, in the last days, you know what? There's going to be some teaching demons in the Lord's churches. Some folks who teach by the power of Satan. Some folks who preach by the power of Satan. That's why I say over and over and over again, you need to know the word of God. You need to know whether I'm telling you the truth or not. I know there are people who say, well, the preacher said it. It must be so. Be careful about that. You know, I've shared with you some preacher talk before. When a preacher tells other preachers that we had almost 200 in church Sunday, that means we had 101. <laughs> a good Wednesday night crowd means they couldn't all sit on the back pew. I mean, that's... We preachers exaggerate sometimes. So be careful about everything that a preacher said. But he goes on about with this. He's saying, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. There's some folks that their consciences are just seared over. Just like a scab on your hand where you've had a cut or an injury. And that's the way some folks' consciences are when they handle the Word of God. God has revealed Himself in His creation, and He has revealed the way of reconciliation in His Word. What did Romans chapter 1 verse 20 say? For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's evidence in the creation that God exists. You can look at the human body. I know of a man who is a doctor who did this. He was professed to be an atheist and he entered the medical field and as he was going through his courses in medicine and examined the human body, he said, this can't just have happened. And he's saved today. 
because he saw that this is from God. There is a God in heaven who created all of these things. God has shown himself to mankind in every way possible. I mean, just go out at night and stand. You know, there's uh, talk right now, I think, of an asteroid coming toward Earth. Has anybody read that? I'm not worried about it. If it is, God can take care of it. So why worry about it? I couldn't do anything anyway, could I, if I worried about it? So God can take care of that. God has shown himself. God has provided a way of fellowship, a way of salvation, and has shown us how to have fellowship with him. He's revealed it all to mankind. And hungry hearts, truly hungry hearts, want to know more about this God and what he has done for mankind. When can you say you've studied the Bible enough? Well, let's see, I've been preaching for, well, that many years these days. And I'm still finding things that amaze me. I was sharing with the Sunday school class. This happened about nine years ago. I was in a church service and a man prayed. And the first thing he said, and this is why I prayed the way I did a few minutes ago. The first thing he prayed was, Lord, hear our prayer or Lord, hear my prayer. And I thought, you know what? If you go back and read some of the prayers in the Old Testament, that's how they prayed. They were not so presumptuous that if I just pray, God's going to hear me, you know. All I have to do is say, Lord, here's what I want. Here, Lord, here's what I need. And so, and just assume. No, and so I decided I need to start praying and asking God to hear my prayers, to hear our prayers. Hungry hearts want to know more about him. You can read the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. There was a man who was an Ethiopian eunuch sitting in his chair reading the book of Isaiah. He didn't know what he was reading, didn't understand it. But God provided an answer for him and that man was saved. Acts chapter 10, there was a Roman centurion, over a hundred men. And yet he wanted to know God and so God provided someone. He provided Peter to go and witness to him and that man was saved and his entire household. What we know, what we can learn about God should just cause us to want to worship him more and more. Amen. You know, I'm glad Brother Rick knows my heart. I was kidding a moment ago when I was saying something not real kind about him, but I was kidding when I said that. But he knows my heart, and we sang that third verse of how great thou art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Oh, what, what a wonderful thing that God has done for us. And so hungry hearts want to know more and want to worship him. Think about God's attributes. His omnipotence, that's his power. His omniscience, he knows everything. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what I'm thinking right now. He knows your motive for being here today. That's the omniscience of God. His omnipresence, God's here. But if there's a church meeting on the other side of the world, I don't know what time it is there now, but if there's a church meeting on the other side of the world, God's there with them too. He can be everywhere. And see, mankind doesn't understand this, so mankind wants to just disavow any of that. But think also about this. Think about the love of God. The love that sent Jesus Christ to this earth to live here and then ultimately to go to the cross and die, not for his friends, but to die for those that the book of Romans chapter 5 calls his enemies. Oh, we should be grateful that we have such a mighty God who cares for us as God cares for us. His children, you and me, his children especially 
should have a desire to worship him to the point that we would not dare miss an opportunity to come together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I understand you can worship God and you ought to on a daily basis, but that you would not miss an opportunity to come together and to worship him with others. So when you think of God and his greatness, there's only one proper response, worship. Now, as far as the manner of worship, worship involves obedience. Do you realize that worship and obedience are synonyms? You can't talk about worship without obedience and you can't talk about obedience without worship. It's meaningless to have one without the other. Oh, I love God, I'll worship God. You're going to do what God says? Oh, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. No, you don't really love God. You don't really worship God that way. I've heard folks talk about, oh, preacher, you don't understand. I can go out and sit on the deer stand. I can go out on my boat and get on the lake, and I can worship God there just as well as I can worship God in church. I beg your pardon, you can't. Ephesians 3.21 Y'all know I love that verse. Unto him, unto God, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. God has designated a place of corporate worship. In the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle and then it was the temple. The apostles taught the importance of worshiping in a New Testament church. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? I believe it's the coming of Christ. The closer we get to the coming of Christ, the more and more that we ought to be assembling together and worshiping God. But you know, the very opposite is happening. The closer we get to the coming of Christ, the colder hearts are getting and people are laying out of church services. In spite of persecution, in spite of difficulties, those early believers met Sometimes they had to hide to do it, but they met to worship God. I talked about corporate worship. I said we, we ought to worship God daily. We ought to worship God daily individually. But there is this thing of corporate worship coming together as a church body to worship God. In the Old Testament, we know they worshiped on the Sabbath day. We understand why back then they worshiped on the Sabbath day. Through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, New Testament churches began to worship on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Now we understand why, right? Do that, it helps me. We understand why. Because Jesus came out of the tomb on the first day of the week. Now, what holiday do we usually observe to remember that? We call it Easter, don't we? Well, guess what? Good Easter Sunday morning to you this morning because every Sunday is Easter Sunday for me because it's a reminder that Jesus Christ came out of the tomb on the first day of the week on Sunday morning. But sadly to many folks and some of them are church members, the only difference between Sunday and the rest of the week is I don't have to work on Sunday. And we're living in a time when so many businesses are open on Sunday that some of those folks do have to work on Sunday now. The best way, the best way to put meaning into your week and into your life is to be here on Sunday morning, Sunday night, worshiping God together and just, I call it getting our batteries charged. You know, I don't know what you go through during the week and I'm not going to bore you with what I go through during the week, 
But Satan will work on you during the week, won't he? He'll put you through tests and he'll try to get you to turn away from God and things like that. And you just need to get those batteries charged on Sunday being together with God's people. And God's word even tells us how to worship. John 4, 24, worship in spirit and in truth. But look at what it says. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now I like words and that word must has a meaning of a necessity. If you're going to worship God, it is a necessity. You must worship God in spirit and in truth. Again, our spirit is directed by the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God. Well, why is that so necessary? Why is that so important? Here's why. Because I think there's a lot of folks today that think I can do just anything and call up worship and God has to accept it. No. God has a standard. God says, if you're going to worship me, here's how it has to be done. And we must meet that standard. And as I said, God knows hearts and God knows motives. And he knows why we do the things that we do. Like I said, some don't worship God in this manner. Some worship just comes out of habit. You know, I'm so glad we changed up the way. It wasn't a big change, but we changed up the way that we were doing things this morning. And I'll be the first to admit, when we leave the routine and we do something different, boy, it just messes me up for a little while. I don't know what to do or when to do it or where to do it, but that's okay. I've got people that'll guide me like you saw. But see, here's what happens a lot of times. We can get into the habit. Most Baptist churches, all right, what do you do? We come in, we have a song or two and a prayer. Maybe a song or two and take up the and a prayer and take up the offering. Maybe another song or a solo or something like that. And the preacher gets up and preaches. Then we have a song called an invitation. We say a prayer and we go home, right? That is the average Baptist church service, okay? And sadly, we get into that routine. And so, I'm going to confess. Confession's good, isn't it? When I was growing up, I kind of sort of slept in church. And I could go to sleep right after the choir got through singing and I could wake up just as we were supposed to stand for the invitation. I had it timed out, folks. Now, don't anybody try that, okay? <laughs> you know why? I quit singing in the choir before I started preaching. I was singing in the choir. I quit one day when I woke up with my head over on the shoulder of the person next to me. I said, I can't do that. <coughs> we're getting used to a routine. We get used to something that's customary. And we can come in and without giving any thought to God, we can go through a worship service. We can leave and say, well, I'll worship today. Well, we may not have. And one of the marks that the Spirit is not present in a worship service is a dry, dull, lifeless service. And I never want to have a dry, dull, lifeless worship service in a church, folks. I mean, we don't have to go overboard and we don't have to do things that are, are, are strange and weird and all of that, but we can have some life. Amen. And I'm thankful we got people that say amen. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Well, I'm thankful we got people that say amen and things like that because that proves somebody's listening or at least they know when to say amen, right? Amen. There are three principal elements to a New Testament worship service. And the very first one is prayer. Amen. Speaking to God. That's an expression of our worship. Then there's praise. That comes through the hymns. That comes through making a joyful noise to the Lord. 
Well, I can't sing, preacher. That's okay. The Bible doesn't say you have to hit every note. I made the bold statement when I got up in the choir that I'm going to stand beside Brother Tim and I'm going to see how badly I can throw him off key with my singing. <laughs> he said, I've resisted stronger voices than yours. <laughs> you know? But we sing songs of praise. And we glorify God with those songs of praise. We make a joyful noise. And then there is the preaching which ought to occupy the greatest amount of the time. The scripture says it is by the preaching of the word that people come to know Christ as Savior. It's by the preaching of the word that people's hearts are stirred to serve God. And so there needs to be the preaching of the word. And the pastor's or the preacher's responsibility is to bring scriptural, spiritual messages. And the congregation's responsibility is to listen with both head and heart and give heed to the Word of God when it's preached. And then, services like baptismal services and Lord's Supper ought to be met by faithful attendance. I said recently, I never want to hear somebody say, and I've heard it said before, oh, I'm not going to church tonight, it's just the Lord's Supper. Just the Lord's Supper? I beg your pardon? What do we do when we observe the Lord's Supper? We remember the price that was paid for our salvation. Amen. Then there's the ministry of worship. What's the primary purpose? What ought to be the primary purpose of all of the services of this church? One, glorify God. You're right. Glorify God. To Him be glory in the church. Now in the Old Testament, some of the ways they did that I give you two words, hallelujah and amen, okay? I don't know that I've ever heard anybody shout hallelujah in a Baptist church. I did hear a shouting Baptist preacher one time. I was filling in at a church, just started seminary. I was feeling they'd asked me to come. And so I'm sitting here like this one Sunday morning. And the choir comes out and they sing a beautiful song. And about halfway through the last verse, this I found out later he was a retired preacher. This preacher behind me says, everybody that loves the Lord stand up and sing hallelujah. And I got about right there and stopped because I didn't know what to do. And I saw people start laughing. But you know what? We stood and we sang and we showed that we loved the Lord. But hallelujah, what does hallelujah mean? It means praise the Lord. Thank God for what he has done. What does amen mean? It means so be it. Yes, preacher, I agree. It is a term of agreement. And sadly, and I'm thankful again that it doesn't, this, I'm not talking about this church when I say this, but sadly in many services, those words are seldom heard. In the basement of the church building where we attended, there was a little poem on the wall. It was to children, but you know, you get things put into your head when you're a child and you remember when you're an adult. I was talking about being silent in the church house and letting your feet fall lightly and being quiet and everything. And it took me a while to learn to say amen because I'm supposed to be quiet. Preacher's preaching. I'm supposed to be quiet. No, if, if God impresses, and I don't want amen said just to make the preacher feel good, but if God impresses it on your heart, amen. And by the way, some of our ladies sometimes, when well, they're a little bashful about saying amen, well, then do that. I know what it means, okay? Give me a thumbs up. We are in danger, folks, of losing the capacity to worship after the biblical manner. I believe we are. Again, we've been taught to be quiet. Do you realize heaven's going to be a place of praise? Amen. Some folks are going to have to learn to praise the Lord when they get to heaven because they're not learning it now. 
Heaven is going to be a place of praise. Some will have to learn to rejoice. Some will have to learn to say amen. Because it's going to, you know, we got this idea of heaven because we've been sold this, sitting on a cloud floating around strumming a harp. It's not going to be that way. And I don't know what we're going to do in heaven, but I know we're going to praise the Lord. There's absolutely nothing wrong with enjoying our worship. David said in the 122nd Psalm, the first verse, he said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. You know what the word glad means? It means I was filled with joy. I was filled with delight. Hey, David, it's time to go to church. Amen, let's go. You know, I'm ready. I can't wait. That's what he meant when he said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. How many times do we get up on Sunday morning and say, oh, man, I got to go today? No, I get to go. Have you noticed, and I pointed this out before, people will say about church and Sunday, Somebody asked them to do something. Well, I can't. I have to go to church Sunday like it's a chore, you know. And then they'll tell you about where they went. Man, I got to go fishing. I got to go. Well, you know. Treat church the same way. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. We are to delight ourselves in the Lord. And again, it has the idea of enjoyment. It has the idea of pleasure. True worship. True worship. Not going through the motions. True worship enriches the life of a child of God. Why should I join in in corporate worship? Well, number one, it emphasizes reality. You know what? We think all these material things are reality. That's not. Amen. Material things are not reality. Spiritual things are reality. Amen. Material things are temporal. Material things are not going to last. There will be a day. I don't know when it will be. But there will likely be a day when this building is not here. There was a day when it wasn't here. There will be a day when it is not here. It's temporal. This is not going to last into eternity. You know what God's going to do with this earth? He's going to melt it down and create a new heaven and new earth. So, you know, all these things. Reality is the spirit life, the spiritual life. And storing up rewards in heaven and living for the Lord. Worship lifts our eyes from the earthly to the heavenly. I love the 73rd Psalm. The psalmist said he looked around and he saw all these people who didn't love God, wouldn't serve God, wouldn't give God the time of day. And he said, I became jealous. I mean, look at the problems I have, Lord, and I try to serve you. Things don't always go right in my life, Lord, and I try to serve you. I try to do what you want me to do. And these people got all the money and I don't have any. And then he says, until I went into the house of God. He went to church. He got it straightened out. We spend six days out in a world that is focused on the material. Amen. And if we're not careful, that's where our minds will get. We have to come back in here and get things readjusted. You know, I like to go to the chiropractor and get an adjustment. Well, sometimes we need to come in here and get an adjustment as far as our minds are concerned. Worship brings understanding. It will focus us on our purpose and on our fulfillment as children of God. Worship gives strength. Isaiah 40, verse 31, but they that wait, and that word wait means bind together, perhaps by twisting or to expect. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I said it gets our spiritual batteries charged. We're reminded of our ability in Christ. 
Someone was asking me about things that they do and, and can't do and don't do and so forth. I said, look, God doesn't expect you to do beyond your ability. Okay? He expects you to do up to your ability, but not beyond your ability. And then worship deepens our fellowship. Remember Elijah out in the desert? We preached about it about a year ago, talking about Elijah out in the desert. He said, Lord, I'm the only one that's left. Nobody else loves you. Nobody else cares for you. Nobody else will stand for you. And God said, what? I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Do you ever feel like I'm the only one? I'm the only one that cares. Nobody else really loves God the way I do. Well, God's got many more that love God the way you do. You just come to church and you'll find some of them, okay? It's when we're isolated from our brothers and sisters in Christ that we begin to get discouraged. We get robbed of blessings, okay? And one other thing, your worship here, your presence here, even your driving here, okay? Now, don't get road rage on the way to church. That'd be a bad thing to do. But even the trip here bears a witness for other people to see. You ever think about that? I looked out this morning. Not many people had gotten here, and I looked at our parking lot, and I said, man, people passing by see that. That doesn't look good. Now, from what I can see, we got quite a few cars out there. And I say, folks, drive by and see what's here. You know. Because it bears a witness. Hebrews 10, verse 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Just coming to church, just driving here, says to other people, I still believe. I hadn't quit trusting God. I hadn't quit trusting Christ. I haven't quit believing. I still believe. And then we preach to the lost when they're here in the services. I don't know if we have any lost here today. Only God knows hearts. And the individual knows whether they're saved or not. But it, it preaches the gospel to the lost. And then every believer present contributes to a potential blessing. There's the power of a united testimony. Just think. I said about people seeing the parking lot as they pass by. But think about a lost person being in here. Maybe somebody that's sort of iffy about believing in God or trusting God. Maybe somebody that's iffy about accepting Christ. And he sees all of these people singing songs of praise. Saying amen to the message. Nodding in agreement. And that has a powerful influence on people. And then consider this. The atmosphere of all of these combined prayers. These united prayers. Let's say there's a lost person here. And many of us know it. And during the invitation, during the preaching... What's one thing I can do during the preaching? Preacher, well, you can pray for somebody that may be lost or, you know, maybe out of fellowship with the Lord. Pray for them that the Word of God will get into their hearts. Remember the prayer I shared with you a few moments ago. This is my desire. I'm going to share it with you again just in case you forgot it. Lord, please awaken the deadened spirits. Do we have deadened spirits in this church? Yeah, we do. Lord, strengthen the weakened spirits. Do we have some weakened spirits here? I believe we do. Lord, embolden the faithful spirits of your children. And we have many faithful spirits here. And I pray that God would embolden them. And then if there's any lost, Father, I pray that the preaching of your word will convict their hearts so that they will repent toward you and put their faith in Christ. I know I've gone, I started to say longer than normal, about normal today, I guess. 
one of the nicest things, kindest acts you can perform to a lost friend, a lost family member, a lost neighbor, a lost co-worker or stranger is to invite them to church and then sit silently praying for their salvation as we have the services. If worship means all of these things to us, we'll truly say like David did, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now some folks can't say that. And the reason some folks can't say that is because they're lost. They don't know Christ as Savior. They don't really know about worshiping God. And they need to come to know Christ as Savior. Some other folks can't say that. Some saved folks can't say that. Why? Because they've gotten out of fellowship with God. Their lives are not what they ought to be. They're not living according to God's will and according to His Word. And so, you know, to go to church and hear that preacher talk about faithfulness and living for the Lord, that, sort of, that convicts hearts. And we, I don't think any of us like to feel bad. And so we're out of fellowship with the Lord, and, and then the Holy Spirit starts working on us, and we feel that guilt of disobedience. Well, I don't want to go back there anymore, right? But you need to be. It's a good, you know, sometimes the doctor has to cut something out, perform surgery to make us feel better. Sometimes God's Word has to cut into our hearts and cut into our lives to make us feel better in our relationship and our fellowship with Him.